A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One of the things that helps me be grateful every day is because I see the other side of life through my work. Contributing to that and trying to make it better gives me such a sense of purpose and such happiness in my own life. I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. So there's a woman, a young Australian human rights lawyer and barrister, who astoundingly is at the centre of what seems to be all the leading or at least era-defining legal cases in the world. The ones you read about in the news, the big headliner ones. Her name is Jennifer Robinson and she grew up in the small rural town of Berry. She's my guest today in the We Are Eight studios. Now, it's very possible you've heard of Jen. She has famously represented WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange from the very beginning, 12 years and counting, as well as Amber Heard in the defamation cases that Johnny Depp brought against her after he was found guilty of raping the actress. She ran the two cases, regarded as the most high-profile legal cases in recent history, within three months of each other, alongside, at times, George Clooney's wife, Amal Clooney. She has also represented British cricketer Azim Rafiq in a high-profile racism case, the Matildas in a case against FIFA for equal prize money at the World Cup. She reversed New York's racist stop-and-frisk law, worked on the case against the CIA's drone strikes in Pakistan, and a case against the Catholic Church over child sex abuse. She was also a legal advisor to the New York Times during its investigation of what became the Murdoch phone hacking scandal. And today, well, Jen is currently representing Vanuatu, referring developing countries to the International Court of Justice for not doing enough to reduce global warning. You might have seen it in the news. And is taking Australia to the UN Human Rights Committee on behalf of the family of David Dungay Jr., the Indigenous man killed in custody, the inquest for which I attended several years back and have followed closely since. And look, I'm going to go in a little more so you can get a full picture here. This is what a week can look like for Jen. Earlier this year, she fronted up to deliver the complaint to the International Criminal Court regarding the killing of Palestinian Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, who was shot by an Israeli sniper in the head while covering an Israeli raid in Jenin in the West Bank. An issue that was very alive when I was there a week ago. In fact, one of the activists we met was also shot while attending the journalist's funeral. Now, the day before, Jen had addressed the UN Human Rights Council on the arbitrary detention of journalists in Hong Kong. The day after the International Criminal Court appearance, it was back to the UN to represent an Australian whose brothers had been abducted in Rwanda. My goodness. 
and on it goes. Awards, medals, other humanitarian cases she's pulled off on the side, the boards she sits on, such as the Greta Fund and the Europe Centre for Constitutional and Human Rights, the foundations she has started, including one supporting kids who've had public education, as both she and I had, and which we'll get to in a tick. She's also published a book, How Many More Women, which exposes how, in the wake of Me Too, the law, the legal system around the world has worked to silence rape survivors, which we will also get to. Now, I should say I met Jen through mutual friends and we've been meaning to catch up on different continents for some time. And eventually we figured a podcast chat might be the best and the most efficient way to go about things, given her mad schedule and somewhat higher priorities. Jen is wild in all kinds of directions. She speaks out in the highest echelons globally on the most controversial issues imaginable. So it's hard to know what to focus on in this chat, but I figured I'd go to a bit of all of it and also to what drives all of it, what fuels her wildness, her ability to speak out in an era in which women are still derided viciously for doing so and in a country that does not like uncomfortable conversations, which is a bit of a theme on this podcast. So, Jen, do journalists and people who speak to you get exhausted just having to read out your bio? (laughs) (laughs) I get embarrassed when I hear people read out my whole bio. I don't think that's the most important thing about me, to be honest. But, yeah, I mean, I'm proud of the things that I've been able to do and I'm proud that I did it from a public education and from Australia. I like that answer. We'll get to (laughs) both of those topics in a moment. Well, why don't we start at the beginning? You're the eldest of six kids. Um, You came from a relatively low-income family and you grew up in a regional area. So you weren't exposed to elite, posh (laughs) (laughs) facilities and people and protocols. You went to a public school, primary and high school, and you arrived in Canberra to study law at ANU. And I've got to tell you, this is my life story. <laughs> Elder six, grew up in the country, not too far actually, yeah. probably only an hour's drive from you. That's and then right. studied law, although I didn't finish in the end. And I also read that you worked three jobs to get through law, which I also did. Can I ask what jobs they were? I had so many different jobs uh, as both at high school and at uni to be able to fund my own education. But at uni, I worked at one of the clubs in town. I forget Private the name Bin? of it. No, 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 not a Canberra, nightclub. Canberra people will know what we're talking about here. Uh, yeah. Or Mooseheads. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I didn't work at the nightclubs. I worked at like a like an old members club or something. Oh, okay. Then I worked on campus. I was a tutor on campus at my yeah. college. I ran the bar in my college. I was at Burton and Garen Hall. I ran oh, yeah. the bar. BNG. Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. And worked in various cafes and on events, a lot of hospitality, like most yeah. university students. I worked at Fringe Benefits Did as a waitress. You? Yeah. And I was also a waitress at Cafe della Piazza. Do you remember that one? I do remember yeah, that. I was there for many, many, many years. I was also modelling on the side. So yeah. I definitely didn't do modelling, but I did end up working in law firms as well part-time for the latter part of my degree as I got further into my law studies. Yeah. So, But it was, a, yeah, it was hard and I'm proud of it. But one of the things that really sort of got my goal when I was at uni was, I don't know if you remember, but back then when we had HEX, I don't yeah. know what the system is now, you could defer all of your HEX payments, which is a great thing. And we were, rather than having private debt at higher interest rates, it was to the government. It was awesome. Which is really important. And I see in the UK, it's so different and it really inhibits access to education. But what really upset me at the time was if, if you could afford to pay part of it off, you got you paid less over less, time. And less interest as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, not just less interest, but you paid less overall. And I thought, well, why, why are we penalising the kids who can't afford to pay it? So I had to pay more for my degree because I postponed the payment than a rich kid who yeah. could afford to pay. And I just don't think that's fair. 
these kinds of inequities in our society, I really think we need to look at. And they're creeping in more and more and more. When I look at the cost of law school, um, for kids like you and I, when we started at law school, the level of um, fees and debt that we were looking at compared to what kids are looking at now, I don't think I would have done a law degree because what I was facing then as a 17-year-old going off to the ANU, I was terrified. I couldn't even imagine earning enough money to pay that off. And I was encouraged by, you know, my parents were like, you know, and friends of friends who were lawyers, like you'll you'll pay it off in time. But for kids now, it's really you, you're chaining yourself to the corporate Absolutely. world in order to pay it off. It's a lot more like the American system. You went on to, though, get a Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford, <laughs> which is a rarefied achievement. Um, generally, you've got to be a white man who went to a private school, I believe, and a <laughs> yeah. member of the Liberal Party. Yeah. And from what I understand, you were, in fact, one of only a handful of kids who'd had a public education and, and arrived at Oxford in that capacity. You became, well, you're an Australian woman in the international legal arena. You've been an outsider for a very long time. I mean, how has that played out for you? Well, I think the beginning, the starting point is that I think coming from the background I came from, my family trained racehorses, my mum was a teacher, I didn't know a lawyer. In a way, not having any expectations is a freedom. None of this was expected of me. So everything I did was a bonus. And I think having that attitude served me well. It also served me well to have not been handed anything on a platter so that I had to squeeze every single ounce out of every opportunity that I created for myself and was offered to me. And I think that really has helped me be where I am today. But certainly the Rhodes Scholarship is is its own sort of institution. And I'm the first Rhodes Scholar from where I grew up, from my region, certainly from Bomaderry High where I went to high school. <laughs> yes. Uh, and But in, from the entire region. And compare that to, say, Malcolm Turnbull when he won the Rhodes Scholarship, 25% of all Rhodes Scholars ever from New South Wales had come from his high school, Sydney Grammar. And I was really aware of that when I got to Oxford. So already through my time at the ANU, I would take time to go back to my high school to speak to the students because I remember when I was at Bomaderry High, I didn't have anyone to look up to. There was no alumni. There was no discussion of our alumni. There was no discussion of what anybody went on to do. And that happened at private schools. Yes. Private schools would have people coming in and going, doing show and tell on what it looks like to be a graduate who went on to go and study medicine. Or and they law. knew their friends' parents. And, yeah. and, you know, had all these existing networks. And I instinctively understood that that was missing for me and I wanted that and I wish I'd had it. So I tried to do it. And so I was going back to my school to talk about these things. And then when I got to Oxford, I realised, I looked around and and I realised, well, not only was I one of very few women, so the year I went through, there were 11 Rhodes Scholars from Australia, only three women. And of that number, only two of us, two women, none of the men had been to public schools. And I thought, well, this is not right because 70% of kids still go to public high schools in this country. It should be more. And the performance between public and private is not significant at all. Like it's a pretty level playing field when you compare like with like. When you consider those facts, I thought to myself, well, why are the numbers so skewed? Why am I in the minority here? We should be the majority here. What is going wrong? And I went to the Rhodes Trust and I said, so how many public school kids come through? I was curious because there were so few my year, just on a, you know, an anecdotal survey that I did myself, they didn't even keep the figures at that time. They do now, I believe. So I did my own survey of Australians, um, Australian Road Scholars at Oxford at that just time. Just in your spare time? Well, I just sent out an email and said, right, who went to public schools? And everybody generously responded. But it was tiny, the number. And I start, that got me thinking, like, you can't be what you can't see. Because I was among boys who went to private schools. For example, one school in Queensland gets a day off when a kid from their school gets the road scholarship. So there's a discussion every year for these kids about what it meant. I didn't know what it was until someone suggested to me, like, you know, a couple of months before the application was due, 
Jen, you should potentially think about the Rhodes Scholarship. You meet the criteria. But these kids are like cultivating their lives to meet that criteria because that's what they're bred and taught to do. And you see it. And then you see it in the selection panels. For many years, it was old white men choosing the next generation of white men from these privileged schools to go through and do this scholarship. That is not fair. You're a massive supporter of public education, as am I. I speak out on it a lot. You know, I find myself at dinner parties and barbecues, as I'm sure you do around the place, um, defending public education. And I've got to be honest, I'm often trying to inculcate (laughs) friends of mine who are sending their kids to private schools um, into the idea of maybe choosing a public education for their kids. It doesn't ever go down well. I've got to tread carefully. But what kind of an argument do you make in those scenarios, as I'm sure you find yourself in as well? Well, first and foremost, look at the products of public education in Australia. Um, There are so many amazing Australians who came through our public education system when we properly fund it. When we properly fund our education system, it has been historically one of the best in the world. We are underfunding it and it is to the detriment of our society and to our economy. I resist the notion that you get a better education at a private school. Yes, they put more money into it, but that's because they have more money. And if we put more money into public education, our schools would be better. And if we all chose to send our kids to public schools, then there would be more money in those public schools. And I think for, as someone who is a product of public education and wouldn't be where I am today without having had free education, quality free education, I am a huge advocate for it because I wouldn't be where I am today without it. How many kids in this country will not end up where I am today because we're not properly funding our education? system. The gap is actually getting bigger and bigger between funding, like government, state and federal funding of private and public schools. And I think we've got one of the largest gaps in funding of public and private schools in the world, or at least the OECD nations. It is absolutely unacceptable. Difficult for me not to swear about it. I'm so angry about it. Yeah. We can afford to fund our public schools. And I think if you want to choose to send your child to a private school, then pay for it. But we should be preserving our government funding for public schools yeah. and for kids who need it. I don't think many people, and in fact, I, I know this to be the case because when I have all of these discussions with friends and people in my circles about the amount of federal and state funding that goes to private schools, they've got no idea. And the discrepancy, the, the amount that a public school kid gets to, to sort of do a year of education versus a private school, it's massive, the difference. We will see an impact on our society for generations as a result of our failure to fund public education. We will see a stratification of our society. We cannot call ourselves an egalitarian society. One of the great things about Australia is our social mobility, the lack of the class system. Apparently, we like to say that, but I question it. In the last decade or so, I very much question that idea of a fair go for all. Absolutely. But yes, you're and right. That's what we like to pride ourselves on. And I think where we're seeing it most clearly is in the failure to fund public education. But it's it's to the detriment of our own economy. We need an educated population. It's a, to the detriment of our democracy and our economy. Well, one of the arguments I make, again, doesn't go down well, um, and I understand why, is that the public school system also needs really good parents advocating. So they need good parents putting their kids into public schools and then supporting the fates and then advocating for more funding from both state and federal MPs. Totally agree. And that's also where 
I think the domino effect of all of this has been seen because it's not happening and people are fleeing the public school system. I completely agree with you and that's why I've started the Acacia Award with the Public Education Foundation. Now that award was started to help kids in public schools but was really encouraging public school alumni to come back and give back to their school region by supporting kids who show promise but who are suffering from either emotional or financial difficulties to mentor them to show, hey, we went to public schools and if we can do it, you can do it too and we're going to help you get there. My idea in creating that program was not just to support public school kids and to create a network of alumni that private school kids have access to because their parents buy them into it, because I believe all kids in our country should have that, but it's to encourage the profiling of success stories from public education to remind people that we have a wonderful public education system. There are so many examples of amazing people, but our public education system doesn't have the resources to pull people back together and to bring them together and to show these children the people that went through the schools they went through. And my aim in showing that is also to show the quality of our public education system, the success stories out of that, and why it's so important that we continue to fund it. I've actually been very inspired just listening to you now because I'm aware I've never gone back to my my school. I've never been asked to. I doubt they have a program, but you're saying this Acacia program is a proactive program to get sort of prominent people, successful people to go back. To go back. And so I saw the benefit of that as a result of my, my proactive decision to go back to the school and offer to come back and speak to the kids. They've seen a massive uptick of young women from Bombardary High going off to do law. You can't be what you can't see. Because I go back and do that, the teachers are telling me it is having an impact on the aspirations of the kids at school and their trajectories. Giving a little bit of your time to kids like that, you don't know the impact you can have on them in the room. That's why I encourage people to give their time. You just don't know the impact you can have. If you'd come and spoken to me, although you were a few years behind me, um, (laughs) I probably wouldn't have quit law. I mean, it was financial reasons that saw me quit. It's hard. This is why funding, and I'm particularly passionate about getting more women into the law, funding to ensure that people from different socioeconomic backgrounds come through our legal system and become lawyers and become judges is so important. Julian Assange, he's back in the headlines again with the US still pushing to extradite him. He was originally, just for people needing the reminder, he was originally indicted on espionage charges in 2010, have I got that right? For publishing documents that exposed wrongdoing in Afghanistan and Iraq. And of course, US prosecutors have argued from the beginning that publishing these files risked lives. I've always struggled to understand how all of that connects. But I'm wondering, Jane, if you're able to comment on the vested interests in the international community in continuing to not address and to stall this case. I mean, I I appreciate you probably can't say too much. You've been on this case from the very, very beginning, from the very outset. In fact, before all of this with those Swedish charges. What sort of, I guess, a top line statement as to why this is still in the headlines and the guy hasn't been brought home or freed? Well, a couple of things. First, um, the criminal investigation into WikiLeaks publications started in 2010. He wasn't indicted until 2017. So it was a criminal investigation into the same publications that Julian and WikiLeaks have won the Walkley Award for Most Outstanding Contribution to Journalism and the Sydney Peace Prize Medal for the contribution to- We like it both ways. Uh, highlighting unlawful war and the impact of war. 
The Obama administration opened that investigation. I've been working with Julian since 2010. I'm his longest serving lawyer. And I have been working with him since the Iraq publications and advising both on the publications and on the various extradition proceedings, including with respect to Sweden, where he was never charged. It was a preliminary investigation that never progressed. The charges charge. dropped. There was no charges. There was no charges. He was never charged. You know, this case has been going on so long. And the vested interest is, I think, in the intelligence agencies and the US government wanting to deter anyone else ever revealing the kinds of information that Julian revealed. And it's important to look at the nature of those publications. We're talking about collateral murder, which was a video which showed US forces killing civilians and journalists and children in Iraq. The US government claimed that they had complied with their rules of engagement. They hid the truth. They lied to Reuters about what had happened to those journalists. And it was because of WikiLeaks publications that we know that was a war crime and that the US government lied to cover it up. The Afghanistan and Iraq war logs, evidence of thousands more civilian deaths than the US government was ever reporting back to the public who was funding those wars, use of torture, human rights abuse, and really the fact that those wars weren't winning. They weren't winning those wars. So the the picture that was being given was different to what was actually happening on the ground. A lot of optics stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. Completely. And so, and then the diplomatic cables, which really showed how US imperialism works and corruption, human rights abuse the world over. It's hard to underestimate the huge public interest of those publications, thousands of stories in partnership with mainstream media organizations the world over. It revolutionized journalism, the way journalism is done. It was the first big global collaboration between different newspapers on a major data story, which we now see happen all the time. Julian implemented encryption within journalism. Nobody was using those kinds of security tools before WikiLeaks insisted they started using it in order to protect that information before publication. So I have so much to say about this, but the important point is this. He is an Australian citizen, an award-winning journalist and publisher who faces 175 years in prison for the same publications that he's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize every year for the past 12 years, more than any other single Australian. So the injustice of it could not be more stark. They are making an example of him because they don't want it to ever happen again. That's what it comes down to, right? Who will have the courage to publish in such a robust way information about the United States if this is what it will do to your life? Or they any are, oppressor. They are stealing his life. What does this case say to China and to Russia, to Iran? Because the precedent that's being set by Julian's case is that any journalist or editor anywhere in the world who publishes truthful information about the United States can face extradition and prosecution for those publications. When you're dealing with a government that has such immense global influence and impacts every single country in the world, that's dangerous. Even more dangerous than that, What does it say to Russia and China? I really believe if Julian had been sought for extradition by Putin instead of Trump, if the words on that indictment were Russia instead of the US, there is no way the the UK would extradite him. Well, he'd be a hero and there's no way they would extradite him. So Australia is complicit in all of this via their inaction. Do you think that Australia under this leadership, do you think that they will, because Albanese, Chris Bowen, they've all spoken out on this and Mm. said enough is enough, I think is the wording they've used. Do you think they'll actually strap on their balls and do the right thing? and bring him home. I am very encouraged by Prime Minister Albanese's position and the fact that he has maintained that position from opposition into his prime ministership. I have spent the past 12 years going to Canberra, briefing members of parliament, briefing the government, briefing the opposition, trying to 
get the government to do the right thing for this Australian citizen. We now finally in a position where our Prime Minister has maintained that position and is doing something about it. So I'm cautiously optimistic. Okay. And I think it is a test of our relationship with the United States. But as I said in the National Press Club address last week, the Prime Minister who resolves this case will be remembered well in our history books and in the books that will be written about this case that have already been written and will continue to be written. It is the most terrifying precedent for free speech in the 21st century. They're not my words. It's the Freedom of the Press Foundation's words. You know, my experience of being in Australia, actually, because I I do a lot of public events, just been on a book tour, and people approach me all the time. The amount of support for Julian in this country is huge. Yeah. And I wish also the media who have all benefited from the legacy of Julian Assange also supported it a little bit more robustly because it's very divided. Well, I think it's changing, actually. So my experience of being home this time has been universal support from the media. I think the needle has shifted. I think finally, I've sounded like a broken record since 2010, warning about what this precedent would mean. If they prosecute Julian, it is a terrible precedent for the media. People tried to other WikiLeaks and other Julian. Well, he's not a journalist, which is makes absolutely no difference to the precedent that's being set. He is engaging in journalistic activity. If they criminalize that journalistic activity, it will be used against journalists. You are shooting yourself in the foot if you don't understand that. Now we have, have had the Trump administration, which was the administration who chose to indict when Obama had chosen not to. We have a president come along who suddenly sees the media as the enemy of the people. Now, finally, the message gets through to journalists. And so we have universal support across free speech organizations, across mainstream media organizations. So it's not right to say that journalists don't support this. I think they were too slow to. And I asked the question, had they been on our side earlier, I don't think it would have been politically feasible for any president to indict. But we are where we are. And now I believe journalists have an obligation and a responsibility to continually ask questions of our government and of the US government about this case until it is shut down because it is their rights. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Amber Heard, let's move on to that case or the multiple cases. And I've got to confess, Jen, that when it was in the headlines, I was very much affected by the way it played out in the media. I was somewhat affected by this idea that celebrities airing their dirty laundry. And I didn't have enough sympathy, I've got to say, for Amber. And a lot of people around me, I think, were in the same boat. I'd love you to set us straight. There were two defamation cases, one in the UK and one in the US. Can you just talk through briefly the differences and, in fact, also outline that it wasn't about disputing whether abuse had happened 
at the hands of Johnny Depp. It was quite a different matter that was disputed and explains the different outcomes and the fact that it was in the media. Yeah, sure. So I represented Amber with respect to the defamation claim that Johnny Depp took against the Sun newspaper in the United Kingdom. Uh, So I was her independent legal representative and worked with the newspaper to defend that case and spent two years working with her preparing the evidence and reviewing the documentary evidence to support her testimony. It's important to note that, and I think it's it's important to give a little bit of context. So Amber went to a judge in 2016 and obtained a restraining order at once she decided to leave Johnny Depp. And in her evidence before the court, she detailed one particular incident of violence, but in her witness evidence said, throughout my relationship with Johnny Depp, he was violent and abusive towards me. But her evidence in, in our case was, well, I didn't want to get into the detail of it. I told enough to be able to get a restraining training order and get out of the relationship and I never wanted to talk about it again. That was as much as she wanted from the scenario as is the case for many women in that situation. And so she did what women are supposed to do. She went to a judge, she got a restraining order, they resolved their divorce and she signed an NDA. So Amber had not spoken to anyone in the media about the details of the violence that she says that she suffered during their time together. Time goes on. You know, it was a controversy at the time, but it didn't change the world. It didn't to spark a movement in Hollywood. This was pre-Me Too. And Amber and Johnny both got on with their lives and he continued being cast in major films. Post-Me Too, though, more questions began to be asked. Domestic violence restraining order from a judge. Why is he being cast in these films? Shouldn't we be asking questions about this? And there was an op-ed written by The Sun. Amber wasn't contacted. She wasn't contacted for comment. She had still not given any comment. She had not spoken publicly about the details of the violence. An op-ed was written in The Sun saying, um, why is JK Rowling casting Johnny Depp in her films when he's a known quote-unquote wife beater. He sues for defamation. So he sues the son. Amber gets a phone call and was put in the same invidious position that Erin Jean Norville was here in the Jeffrey Rush proceedings when the Daily Telegraph published that story. The story had already been widely published around the world in news reports about the court decision, the restraining order, but here he was suing them. And, And the effect of his case was she lied. This is defamatory. She lied. And then it becomes the Amber Heard case. Right. So, But what people need to understand, Amber never wanted this to be aired publicly. She wanted out of the relationship. Because then it was reported widely, he sues for defamation. Her decision is, well, he's saying I lied. The newspaper could have settled at any time for commercial reasons. They took the principal decision of defending it and asked her to give evidence and she agreed to. And after working with her on that evidence and with the newspaper, a judge decided after hearing the evidence, after seeing him cross-examined, her cross-examined, medical evidence, text messages, witness evidence, the judge found it was true. In 12 separate incidents. And truth is a defence in the UK? Truth is a defence. So to a defamation action, if you sue for defamation, you're saying what you have published is not true. In Amber's case, Depp was saying that she lied. The judge, looking at the evidence, determined, in fact, it was true. That was the defence that the son ran. This is actually true. He did hit her. He was violent towards her. And a judge agreed in 12 separate incidents. Then, of course, he sues her personally. In the US. In the US. In Virginia, where there's no um, public interest legislation, which we call anti-slap legislation, that would have chucked the case out because of her free speech rights. There's that extra element, right? Exactly. Um, Truth is not enough. You've also got to have that it's in the public interest. There's a lot of differences. So for media lawyers who understand the law, Depp sued in the UK and sued a tabloid in the UK, which is notoriously pro-claimant. So it should have been easier for him to win his case in the United Kingdom. And he lost. The burden of proof was on the newspaper and we help them prove. Defamation cases like that often win. 
Exactly. So we helped them prove that it was true. He then sues her in the US, which is a more difficult standard of proof for him. The burden was on him to prove that not only was it not true, she lied with malice. And unfortunately, what we saw happen was the same old tired tropes about domestic violence that had been rolled out in the UK case and did not persuade a judge, rolled out in front of a jury and succeeded. And the jury awarded $15 million in damages against her, which was reduced by the judge because it was beyond what they were entitled to award. That outcome is, for media lawyers who understand the law, absolutely absurd. For someone who worked closely with Amber and with the newspaper and saw the evidence play out in the, in the UK, the outcome is absurd. Now, I didn't work on the US trial. I observed it from afar. What was also troubling to me was the fact it was live streamed on YouTube and on television. We have protections in any other case involving gender-based violence in the criminal system, even in the so we would never televise a criminal trial in this country. The US has different rules, but even in the US, where there's a much more open approach to criminal proceedings, you wouldn't televise a woman's evidence of sexual violence. Amber's evidence of domestic and sexual violence was broadcast live online Why? for the world. Why was the, it allowed to? Because he asked for it and the judge granted it. I don't know if anybody watched it, but to me it was absolutely horrifying. I think we all saw but snippets. watching people saw snippets, but they think because they saw snippets that were cut up and put across social media that they knew they know what happened in the case. I really ask people to resist the temptation to make judgments on tiny snippets of what was it a six week trial? Any snippets on social media of anything? Suspend judgment. <laughs> exactly, suspend judgment. <laughs> to me, what was horrifying, and and I observed observed the proceedings from afar, was that the online comments were switched on on YouTube. So while Amber was giving testimony of some of the what she described as the most traumatic experience of her life, it was just like thousands of instantaneous misogynistic comments that were raining up across my screen. And I thought, women who have been abused are watching this. Children and teenagers are watching this. Watching the way people spoke about evidence of domestic violence and propagated old sexist stereotypes about who is a real victim, about what constitutes abuse, the standards that Amber was held to in her evidence, the way people excused his behavior and his language around women, and that that was being shared to teenagers. I had friends calling me saying, my kid is watching this stuff on TikTok and is coming out with this stuff that is horrifying me. This is the kind of thing we should be educating children against. Yes. We have entire programs in our legal system to educate police, judges, prosecutors against these very tropes. And we just had the biggest advertisement for them it was the world of, could have seen. It was one of the most publicised legal cases in the world. You know, I overheard the conversations. People have very black and white views about who they supported in that case from what they saw in the snippet on the news or in the snippet online. And as someone who has an in-depth knowledge of the case, I found that really troubling to watch. But even more troubling was the way people spoke about Amber. And I just ask people to ask themselves the question, one in three women in this country and elsewhere have suffered sexual violence. One in four women have suffered domestic violence in this country. How many women are going to speak out about their abuse or confide in you about what has happened to them if they heard the way you spoke about Amber? Amber won't hear it. Johnny Depp won't hear it, but your friends who have suffered abuse will hear it. And what impact will that have on them? And that is what's so devastating about this whole case and why I feel so strongly about speaking out about it and what I know about it and what I saw of it 
because I'm devastated by the silencing effect. I have colleagues calling me saying that their clients who are domestic violence survivors don't want to take their case forward anymore because they saw what happened to Amber. I have lawyers calling me saying that their clients are being told by their perpetrator, don't speak out, don't be an Amber because no one's going to believe you. I can see your upset and anger in your eyes. and I'm so devastated by it. And is that why you wrote your book? No. In fact, I was already working on this book long before the Depp case came across my desk and before I met Amber. I decided to write a chapter about the two Depp defamation cases because I was so horrified about the way I saw the US trial play out. And it's interesting as we've been doing the book tour, you know, there's so many case examples in this book. This is not about Johnny Depp and his defamation cases. This is about something much bigger. It is about what I was seeing happen in my practice. Women, journalists, frontline services organizations being silenced from being able to speak about gender-based violence because of defamation risks. Women who had signed non-disclosure agreements coming to me for advice being silenced about war warning other women about repeat offenders in the workplace long before the Weinstein thing came along. These high-profile cases have given it a visibility, but that that is the tip of the iceberg of what I was seeing in my practice, which is what motivated me to write this book. But what's interesting about it is that going around Australia doing the book tour the past couple of weeks, how many women came up to me, and it's mainly women who turn up to these events, the rare men, there should be more men in the room because this book is not just for women, it's for everyone. How many women and their kids came up to me afterwards saying, I didn't even know there was a defamation case in the UK and that he lost it. I was like, yes, there was. And I encourage you to go read the very long, meticulously detailed judgment from an expert and experienced judge, which sets out the evidence. That is completely forgotten. It is. I had young teenage girls come up to me saying, I've been horrified by hearing my friends talk about it at school. Or even young women say to me, I said some of those things about Amber. And I said, well, I hope you read the book and you think about it slightly differently. The book is called How Many More Women Exposing How the Law Silences Women. And what I find really interesting is that as, well, Me Too obviously accelerated this sort of movement with women speaking out. And as you say, it was all happening before then, but Harvey Weinstein and then of course the Me Too movement accelerated it all. But as we saw all of that happen, there was also a parallel kind of acceleration of retaliation happening where predominantly rich, powerful men taking the defamation route and using the legal system to to do the opposite, to silence women and take the whole cause back, backwards, which is just a frightening concept. And that's what your book exposes is that, yep, we're seeing Me Too do all this stuff, but there's this reciprocal retaliatory movement happening behind the scenes in the legal world. Can you explain a little bit of what you see and what we don't see? Because as you say, a lot of it's happening behind the scenes. A lot of the stuff doesn't even come to trial. It doesn't come up into the public because it's settled out of court. Well, I think there's a misperception that post-Me Too women can say whatever they want about their experience of domestic and sexual violence or gender-based violence, as we call it in the book. What we've seen is that the legal tools that have always existed suddenly became more visible because women were breaking the cultural silence and finally empowered to speak publicly about their experience. And then all of a sudden we saw this raft of litigation follow where the existing legal rules that have always been there suddenly became more visible because they're being utilised more because more women were speaking out. The New York Times reports this sort of avalanche of civil defamation claims in response to Me Too allegations. And so what we wanted to write about was really to talk about this and how it impacts upon our ability as a society to deal with violence against women because the position we take, and I think it is true and self-evidently true, we can't grapple with the problem 
if we don't know the extent of it. We can't grapple with the problem if we can't talk about it. Our policymakers can't start to fund, regulate, make policy, improve it if we don't know what the problem is. And so that's sort of our starting point. And because what we were seeing is there's a chapter in there that I wrote and I had in mind because I work a lot with journalists trying to break these stories. And I really wanted people to understand that when they see a Me Too story in the media, understand the process that you have to get to to even get it into the media. So I I hope that when people read this book, they'll never look at another media story the same way again because it is so hard to report this stuff. It is so expensive to be sued. The threat of litigation is most of the time enough for people to self-censor. Women who speak out about their abuse are getting defamation threats. They will come to me for advice. We will advise them on what their risks are. And they'll say to me, well, Jen, surely he can't sue me. It's true. And I said, well, sadly, even if it is true, he can sue you. And it's a matter of proving it in court. Can you afford to prove it in court? Are you willing to go through the trauma of being cross-examined by his counsel in court? Are you willing to open yourself up to the disclosure obligations that he is going to push upon you using court-mandated process to get access to all of your personal material? Most people settle. Most media organizations cannot afford to defend these cases. Unless you're News Corp, and even if you are News Corp, your legal budget is going to take a severe hit if you report one of these stories and you get it wrong. It's the pressure on that these defamation cases and the threat of defamation has on our ability to talk about this is very, very real, but it's not seen because if you get a letter marked private and confidential, not for publication, thousands of letters will go out. We won't even know the, I only know my little part patch, which is, this is just what I know and what I know through my colleagues and what I know from the journalists I work on. I can't talk about a lot of it because it's privileged. I can only talk in general terms about what we see. People need to understand there is, what you see in the public domain is just the tip of an iceberg and all of the rest of that is being censored. Mm -hmm. And silenced. And silenced. I mean, there couldn't be a more powerful tool than the threat of a defamation case to stop a woman from speaking out because what could be worse than being put on trial and having it all exposed and suddenly you're the one that's being put on trial. Exactly. Um, it really switches things. It's I can see why so many rich, powerful men feel very safe in taking that route. Well, they know. They know that if the threat of litigation can sometimes be enough. So take a hypothetical example. Say it's true. He's yeah. wealthy. You just chuck out a defamation case and see what happens. See throw, if it sticks. Throw an aggressive letter in the mix and you know that they're probably not going to be able to afford it, push them so far. I mean, we know cases will go all the way to court and be withdrawn on the steps of court, but who ha- who is robe or part heard? Yeah. Look at Craig McLaughlin. Yes. Did not pursue that case when it was clear how many people were coming forward to give evidence. Mm, they've got the power to shut it down when they want to. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's really, I find it really problematic. And I think we need to talk about the cost to our society, the cost to individual women. Many of the women we interviewed around the world, and I want to make clear this book is not just about what's happening in Australia and the UK, where obviously my home and the place where I practice law, but we interviewed people from Japan, Colombia, Uganda, South Africa, India, Pakistan. This is a global picture. It is cutting across geography, culture, and language. And it's really important that we see this because we have to grapple with it. Because if we can't deal, if we can't talk about it, then we can't deal with it. And we know that there is a pandemic of violence against women. Yeah. We know what the statistics are. And I can tell you in the book events. We're being prevented from talking about it. Exactly. And in the book events I've been doing around the country, I can see visceral reactions in the room that 
make me understand that those statistics are very real. I don't think anyone disputes it. Anyone who's <laughs> had a proper conversation with friends and family about it. It's a very enlightening uh, angle on all of this. And I've learned a lot from understanding this defamation concept. Well, I also just want to say it's not just defamation. Even going through this process, I'm a media lawyer and I've understood it better by doing this book. And one of the things- It's a great thing about writing a book, isn't it? (laughs) It is, it is. And I I mean, yeah, sadly, I've had to deal with way too many traumatised people and been engaging so much with stories about gender-based violence. It's it's devastating that it's everywhere. But the one thing that I think is a really important perspective for people to understand is that when any person, when you suffer sexual assault, domestic violence, any form of gender-based violence, the law regulates what you can say, when and to whom. And there are legal risks at every turn. And we want people to be empowered by the knowledge of that. Some people have said, oh, don't you think you're just scaring people from speaking out? No, because you can speak out. It is entirely possible to. You just need to make sure that you understand where the risks and pitfalls are and be clear about what your objectives are. And we hope that the book will at least empower people because knowledge is empowerment. A very current issue that you do address in your book, of course, is the Bruce Lehman trial. And there's slabs of the first edition that have been blacked out because the information in the book could prejudice the trial, which obviously has been suspended. Is that the correct terminology? The jury was discharged. Discharged because they brought in information that's going to be a retrial in the new year. Brittany Higgins is a name that we all now know, um, unfortunately, through tragic circumstances. The trial is a heated one. Maybe you could explain why slabs had to be cut out, why some of the information could be problematic for that trial, why you had to take out some of that information. Well, the first thing to note is that it's I can't discuss the case or the details of the case because of the contempt risks and the very stern warning that the judge has given in this case. In terms of the media coverage and the description of it being the Brittany Higgins trial, it exemplifies the concerns that we raise in the book about the way the media covers trials involved, whether civil or criminal, trials involving women's allegations of gender-based violence. We decided because the the trial was postponed for contempt issues, this book will ha- would have come out after the verdict. We decided rather than remove what the discussion of that case in the book, because to me it was such an important part of what happened in 2021. I didn't think the book and what we talked about about Australia made sense without it. And this whole book is about how we are silenced from talking about gender-based violence because of rules that govern what we can and can't say. We actually wanted to redact everything that was legaled out of our book to show people how much... Redacting is this idea of blacking out rather than removing the content completely from your book. So rather than remove it, which many of the books did that were coming out, uh, we decided to redact it. We wanted to show people just how the law does regulate what we can and can't say and when. Now, there's very good reasons for contempt protections to protect the presumption of innocence. So we, we respected the judge's decision, but I have a lot to say about it and I have a lot more to say about it, but I can't say it now. I've got to ask you what you might want to say to anyone listening who finds themselves hovering on the sidelines of wanting to step in and speak up because there's a lot of people who would like to say they would like to, who are very much, you know, put a like on on tiles on Instagram, yes. <laughs> black tiles and whatever it might be, but don't quite make the plunge. And I think, for, you know, often there's a fear of being exposed. I think particularly in this country, the tall poppy syndrome, you know, you've got an opinion, particularly as a woman, um, you've got to be really brave, dare I say it, ballsy. 
and I'm not just talking about people who've had direct experience. I'm talking about people who might want to, like you, use whatever relative privilege they have to speak out on behalf of others. What do you say to them if they're hovering on the sidelines and haven't quite plunged? If you're interested in supporting the issue around gender-based violence, there are so many ways of supporting publicly and privately. Donate to a women's refuge. There are so many great frontline services organisations that already exist in this country. Please donate money to support them. One of the things that helps me be grateful every day for the life that I have is because I see the other side of life through my work. And contributing to that and trying to make it better gives me such a sense of purpose and such happiness in my own life. You know, you might want to do something good for somebody else, but I'm telling you, you will feel great about yourself for doing it. I think you've captured that aspect, that paradoxical aspect of the human nature. When we expose ourselves, when we take risk, when we roll up our sleeves, when we stand in the arena to contribute to something. Yes, we come online. We're on fire. We can feel the vibrancy. And so much of depression and anxiety stems from a sense of lack of purpose and meaning, a sense of listlessness, nothingness. My existence doesn't count for anything. It counts. It counts, but you've got to get in the arena. Exactly. It counts and you can make it count for so much by helping other people. I think that's a wonderful note to finish on. Um, Thank you so much, Jennifer. We're going to have to finish this discussion over a whiskey, I think. (laughs) Continue. I'd love that. A long delayed (laughs) meetup. I hope all of you got heaps from this chat. Jen and I will be staying in touch. Our chat actually continued after I hit stop for quite some time and we covered all kinds of things. I recommend following her work. She has this incredible compass for knowing what matters on the planet right now. I also recommend reading her book, buying it, and perhaps having it on hand for when you or someone you know faces a situation where you or someone you know might need to know how to navigate the legal system and maybe even gamify it. Also, I hope this chat gets us alive to how we come to know about these cases. It certainly did for me and how these cases are framed by the system and the media and to then take on more agency when we discuss them, you know. She made incredibly good points on this. How we discuss it doesn't really affect the celebrity. It doesn't affect the person who's been accused. It affects everyone around us who goes, well, I don't know that I can speak out on this. The Brittany Higgins trial is the Bruce Learman trial. Let's remember that. Look out for these kind of treatments, these semantics that we're often blind to. And in a defamation case, bear in mind that this is not a celebrity airing their laundry necessarily. Often her accuser is retaliating. That's what's going on. And finally, for a soundbite just to have on hand and to repeat what Jen reminded us of, less than 2% of rape and sexual assault allegations are false allegations, like less than 2%. And yet one in three, so 33% of women have experienced sexual assault. We don't have a false allegation epidemic going on. We have a sexual assault epidemic going on. Okay, so keep speaking out, keep stepping into the arena. It's wildly appropriate, it's wildly life-enhancing, and it's needed. And don't forget to share this episode, to rate it and leave a review. I do love doing this podcast, but goodness, the hustle to keep it going is a bit of a drag. So your support really, really helps. Until next week, please do stay wild. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.